You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, and so we're going to pick up where we've left off in this journey through the gospel of Matthew. That is, it's the first book in the New Testament, and it's the first of the four Gospels. That is, the word gospel simply means good news. The good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. And we believe that is incredibly good news. And so we find ourselves uh, in one of the most popular sections of this gospel. And in fact, one of the most popular sections of text in history, known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first as Matthew tells us, kind of going public of Jesus' teaching ministry. And we find ourselves, in fact, not only in the most popular text ever written, but in the most popular section of that. That is, this area where Jesus is teaching about what it means to have a genuine faith in light of the kingdom that he's bringing through his person and work. And that section that we've seen over the last few weeks is the Lord's Prayer. Now, the important thing I would just say at the outset of this particular chapter, it's so packed, and you'll see even in what we read today, it's, it's so packed. The problem won't be that you, hear, you, that you may not quote this. Um, the problem will be that you might hear this quoted out of context and void of its original meaning. So our goal has been as a church to kind of see the, not, only, not only just, just these passages, but the Lord's Prayer even in its context and, and the ways in which Jesus is telling us how we are to give generously in light of this kingdom we've been invited into, how we pray and relate to God as a father now in light of this kingdom. And what we'll see here is how we experience self-sacrifice or self-denial. So let me, if you'll look with me, we'll read just those first phrases in verse 5 and 7 before we're going to pick up uh, in verse 16 and read through 24. And so in the verse 5 you see, and when you pray, not if, Uh, Or excuse me, verse 2, I'm sorry, I skipped. Verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, not if, but when you give generously to those in need, reflecting the way that God has generously provided for us in our need, he says, don't do it as the hypocrites. And then you see it again in verse 5. And when you pray, not if, but when you pray, you must, again, do you hear that? Not be like the hypocrites. So I want you to see there's three different acts of of piety, acts of an outward demonstration of faith that he is saying we are prone to be hypocrites in, and the third one we see today. So it's beginning in verse 16 through 24. Let's read it together and begin to explain and I hope encourage one another with it. Beginning in verse 16, and when, not if, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." 
The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I pray God would add illumination and encouragement to the reading of his word. In our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 4, we see Matthew telling us about the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee. It's important that we remember that place. It's going to circle back to it by the end of this story. And we make our way to this in public ministry, miraculous works, but also powerful teaching, the kind of teaching and the kind of words that have echoed throughout the ages. And if you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're not familiar with what Christians believe, You'll, you will have probably heard some things in just the passage that I read that sound familiar. Like you've probably heard some sort of derivative of those. You can't serve two masters. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. And so in chapter 6, we have seen I've told you, this, this picture that Jesus gives now of living in light of his kingdom that's come in a way that's genuine. Now, you'll love this. The younger you are in this room, the more likely that you've been kind of steeped in a tradition of authenticity, right? It is more important to be yourself than anything else, right? That's, that's kind of the, the expressive individualism that's, that's in many ways kind of defined our culture and our sense of worth. And, and there, there's a, you're actually in an advantage here because Jesus is speaking your language. And, and, and you know this, the younger you are in this room, the more you have an advanced radar for people being fake. Right, like right now, if, if I said something that was dumb, you'd probably forgive me really quickly. But if I said something that, that seemed fake, you'd be like, I can't even hear him anymore. Right? Th that's the culture in which we exist. And I want you to know there, there, that's a common grace in many ways that, that has echoes of what Jesus is talking about here. That there is a truth and a depth. There is a there is a sense that God reveals and knows that which is the most secret, the most authentic, the most genuine about us and reveals that about even himself. And God, did you hear that encouraging word? Sees it. That's the thread through this is that God sees what's real. God knows what's authentic. You think you have, you think you have a radar for fakeness and inauthenticity. You have, you have like a, 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 a glimpse of the depth of knowledge and omniscience that God has. He sees everything as it really is. And so in light of this kingdom, we operate with an authenticity that reflects how we are known and understood by God in the way that we, we saw give generously, in the way that we pray, and here we see in the way that we fast, in the way that we relate to possessions, and next week we'll see in the way even that we relate to fear, anxiety, and trust. So in verse 16 through 18, you get a section on fasting. I want to propose to you a couple of summary statements to help understand these two sections. The first one about fasting and experience of self-denial, and then in the second section about treasure, literally about money, 
about what we see and behold and then what we serve. So that first section about fasting, here, here's a, a I hope a a warning that Jesus gives in this text. You become consumed by what you consume. This is what it means to live as a a sinful person, marred by sin to our depths, living in a sinful, broken, and fallen world. You may have heard the phrase, you are what you eat. I mean, that's usually followed by some sort of joke or some sort of pithy comeback. But, But in this sense, he's saying something that, What you consume has the power to reshape what you believe about yourself and about the world. And so when he says, when you fast, he's saying, ultimately, just like like he said when you give generously, just like he said when you pray, and just like he said here when, when you fast, you will do these things. You will. The question isn't whether or not you will do it. The question is, what is it that you hunger for? And what is it that you deny yourself for? All of these serve to inform us about kingdoms and domains that exist in your life and mine. So you will give and you will have pity on people. Who will it be? And what, and what will you see? That, how will you see? That? Will you, like he says, the hypocrites, will you give so that people will think you're a nice and giving person? You will pray, even if you're not, even if you're the most atheistic person in the room, you will pray. You will long for something. If I if I asked you, you know, tomorrow, don't desire or long for anything, you couldn't do it. Because one of the most innate human features is that is the feature of desire. You will wake up and hunger and thirst and long for something. You can't not do it. And so even I've told you, like, you know, don't desire or long for anything. Don't pray. Even the most atheistic person couldn't do it. Because the minute you wake up, the first thing you think is, I need something, I want something, I desire, right? You, the urges, first thing in the morning that overwhelm you, are, are one of the most human characteristics. And so you will deny yourself. You will sacrifice. The question is, what will you sacrifice and what will it be to accomplish? We will all do without. The question is, will you do these things for a purpose that's noble and meaningful? And so... In light of being a desiring, longing human being, which is what we are, the question isn't, will we long and consume things to get us through the day? The question is, how will they affect us? Are we aware of the ways in which the, what we desire and what we long for actually has an effect on us? And Jesus seems to be saying here that we ought to be operating uh, in lives of self-denial, realizing that what we consume has power. It has real power. In the end, these people here, in their fasting, in their sacrificing, are putting on a show. They're ultimately interested in the approval of others, not the approval of God. They want to be seen by humans, and they don't realize that all things are seen by God, which is why they think they can put on a show, which is why they think their physical and outward lives is somehow like disconnected from what God sees and knows to be true about them. It's deceptive. It's dishonest. And Jesus reminds once again here, for the third time in the chapter, that they succeed. They get what they want. Truly, they have their reward. They get it. If you, if you want people to think you're suffering, if you want people to think you have it really hard, you really do, you're, like, you're really living without, he says they're going to get it. They're going to contort their phases and, and draw attention to how difficult they have it. He says they're going to get their reward. 
But in the end, it says there in denial that the real reward comes from the God who is a father and sees our needs, even, even knows our needs before we ask them. He sees beyond the outward action, and he sees to the heart. He knows well why they are doing what they are doing. He then gives us some counsel. How do we experience self-denial? How do we experience an intentional and a willful denial, a self-sacrifice? He says you do it normally. Just act normally. Did you hear what he said? Then when you fast, again, not if, when, anoint your head and wash your face. Now this would have been, right, think of this as like get dressed. Look like you would normally look on a, on a certain day, right? Think, think of it as like there's a way you dress for a funeral and there's a way you dress for the rest of the days. And he's saying, on a normal day, you dress this way. And in a day of mourning and sacrifice and sorrow, you dress this way. And even when you are willfully accepting sacrifice and sorrow, dress like a normal day. Why? Well, as Christians, we know that in light of the cross, living a life of sacrifice and self-denial is just normal. We are marked by a movement of sacrifice, of denial, that Christ emptied himself and took the form of human beings, took on flesh. And so we who are the ones who follow Jesus know he denied himself. Now act like it. Let me speak a little bit about fasting. Here's the, what I probably know about most of you. You've never, you've never intentionally been in, like, intentionally or willfully been a part of a fast for spiritual purposes. It's, it's very unlikely, right? Um, whereas, like, you know, like, let's say, like, the more kind of the higher church background you may come from, right, you, you're, you got it all figured out up here, theologically, intellectually, you nailed it, I promise you probably never fasted in your entire life, ever. You're like, we don't do that, right? We're too smart for that. Whereas maybe if you're, like, from a, like, a, if you have, like, a Pentecostal background, you're probably fasting right now. You're fasting you're fasting to get a parking spot at Walmart later. Like, you're like, and I just want, like, across the spectrum, you might see the, like, the, the sovereignty of God in, in salvation. On this side, you'll see the sovereignty of God in salvation and over eternal spiritual things. Over this side, you're probably a lot better at seeing the sovereignty of God over even little things. And I want you to see here that Jesus seems to imply that both are a part of life. That experiencing denial is something that will happen just because you live in a broken, fallen world. But in fasting, we intentionally and willfully deny ourselves of something so that we will have less power over us, so that we will experience some greater spiritual truth, some greater spiritual power will rest on us in that. So you willfully sacrifice things in order to experience something greater, you deny yourself in order to achieve or experience something of greater value. Now, what I want to, uh, in light of this kind of like what you consume will consume you, I want to give you uh, two distinctions, one about fasting and then the second one about treasure. The one about fasting is I want you to be able to come away from this and know the difference between fasting and self-deprivation. There is a difference between fasting and deprivation. There's a difference between self-denial and self-deprivation. Deprivation is, is to, in many ways, bankrupt or bereave of something, to dispossess or even to rob or be robbed of something, to be, to be stripped bare. Think, think of, like a, of, 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 of like a, your boss docking your pay. 
You're losing something. Something is seized by force against your will. That's deprivation. Whereas fasting is a a voluntary abstinence, a willingness to set limits and to express self-control and self-restraint. It's chastity. It's self-denial. It's a soberness and temperance about what we see around us. We intentionally refrain or forego something. We pass it up. We may even, as we see here, we may even renounce it because we see something greater. Think of it this way. In this case, fasting is feasting on God's Word and presence. And we saw this already as Jesus was wandering in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and he said, hey man, just turn that rock. He tried, right, remember, Satan tried to be his father and provide for his needs. Hey, take that rock, turn it into bread. And what did he do? He, he responded with a quote right out of Deuteronomy. The man does not live on bread alone, but on, upon every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what was he saying? Like, I don't live only on food. I could, eat all, I could turn all these rocks into a feast, and I would still need God to sustain me and deliver me. And fasting is when we intentionally forego Other things, in this case food or you name it, something we forego in order to recognize that that isn't what gives us ultimate life. That isn't the thing that is ultimate and primary in our life. It may be good, it may be amazing, but it is not ultimate. Whereas deprivation is doing without something against your will. Now this is important because for most of you, if I talk to you about living a life of self-denial following Jesus, you may be of a good, good upper Midwesterner raised in, in a religious circle, and you're all about that. You're all about suffering and ooh, gritting it out for Jesus, right? And you're excited about it. The things you'll do for Jesus, wow, it's amazing. But you don't do any, you don't do any of those things because of joy. You don't do any of those things as an act of rejoicing for how kind God has been for you. And I want to confront you with this. You, when you see Jesus, you see him gritting it out on your behalf. Not, you, don't hear the, you don't hear the quote of the New Testament that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for you. And in the same way that God isn't just looking at you and like, well, I guess I'll stick it out. I guess I'll put up with that person so that now you don't have to do that. God looks at you with love, joy, and says, I will send my one and only son so that you will know what love looks like. And when that starts to trickle down into the depths of your heart, it's impossible. It's impossible to hold tightly to things, and it's impossible to do that without joy. When you see the love of God expressed to sinners, and that while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us, for the joy set before him, it melts you. It melts you. And this is the part where, right, you want me, you want me to go like, well, no, all right now, guys, I need you to stick it out. All right, Christians, let's gut it out. Which is the most anti-gospel, ungodly thing I could ever tell you. But it's probably what you've been raised in. And what you need to hear is, let's rejoice in the Lord always. Let's rejoice in what he's done for us. You don't need to get tougher or harder. You need to be soft. You need to be crushed and cracked. And let the grace of God melt you. So that when you give, when you serve, and imagine even when you, as he's saying here, when you fast, it's normal. Because you know the joy that was set before Jesus, that he endured the cross, and you know the joy the Father gives by seeing and knowing all things and loving us anyway. Fasting is when we 
intentionally in our bodies say, I don't need this to live. I, I, mean, I mean, in the most powerful and profound way, I could starve to death. I could fast. I could go on a hunger strike and fast and die of starvation. And my fate is secure in Christ. Deprivation is simply trying to do without against your will. Think of it this way. Deprivation is when you are starving without it because you need it to live. Deprivation is when you say, like, I, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to be miserable about it. I deserve better than this. Whereas fasting, think of it this way, is dying to it. It's dying to the desire because you know you don't need it to live. So let me repeat that. Deprivation is when you're doing without something that you really think you need to live. Fasting is when you die, you deny yourself, you, you, you crucify it, crucify the flesh and its desires because you know you don't need them to live. This has the power to change everything for us. This has the power to, in many ways, show us what it means to live in a broken, fallen world where we as humans are needy and dependent creatures. We're always in need. The problem isn't that we're in need. The problem is that we, we're regularly deceived about what it is that we really need. In this case, we talk about like what we consume and how we are sustained. But you'll see in the second section about what we think we need and we treasure. Fasting is when you say, I'm going to give these things, these desires, these longings to God. I'm going to die to them so that they'll be resurrected and reborn as they should be. Deprivation, you complain about it. You really want the thing that you're doing without. Fasting wants the greater thing. It wants the greater, more powerful and eternal thing that you can't possibly do without. Fasting has the power to simply reorient your focus on other things. It can show you how the power of your own flesh dictates most of your decisions. And then you can begin to deny yourself, begin to sacrifice yourself. So he says sacrifice. Don't draw attention to it. Instead, act like, understand that this kind of sacrifice in light of Christ is normal. Here's some practical principles with that. One of the ways you can kill your soul is to never draw attention to your sin or your struggles or your failures or your weakness or your need. One of the ways you can starve and kill your soul is to only, as we see here, put on a face and put on a show. And yet, on the other hand, one of the ways you can starve sin is to simply not draw attention to your righteous deeds, to really trust that the Father sees. Think of it this way. If you hide your sin, but you show your best face, you will spiritually starve. But if you hide your put-on-a-show face and instead confess your sin, you will spiritually feast. You will be so full of grace, so sated and satisfied by God's grace in it, it will overwhelm you. I mean, think, even now, even right now, if I tried to put on a show, right? if I tried to put on a religious face and encourage you to do the same thing, think of how that would starve you. Think of how unsatisfying that would be. 
You would walk away and maybe, maybe, maybe on, you know, on a good day, you might walk away on a Sunday and go like, that was a great show. What a good show, right? What, what good music. What a good sermon. And thereby be starved spiritually. Whereas the goal here would be to walk away saying, what good news. What a great Savior. It's true of me, it's true of you. Even now, if you're trying to put on your best face and hide sin and weakness and frailty, you are starving your soul spiritually. But if you renounce the temptation to put on a spiritual face, to put on an act, you will be overwhelmed at how much grace is waiting for you. You'll be overwhelmed and deeply, deeply satisfied. What a good Savior, you'll say. The temptation is to think that in depriving yourself, you're actually accomplishing something, when in realize depriving yourself, kind of gritting yourself against it, just shows how much bondage you're into that thing. And we need to regularly confess this because we're regularly confused by what we really need. The daily discipline of reading the Bible, of in this case we see here in this chapter, praying and being generous helps us to discern God's will for our life. And so also is the discipline of putting our earthly desires to death. This is not meant to lead us into some sort of legalistic practice of fasting. Instead, it's meant to lead us into the joy that we come, we come into when we realize we have every eternal need met by Christ. Think of it this way. If you're like, well, do I have to fast, right? That's like telling your friend or like your loved one or spouse, do I have to be nice to you? Right? You've, you've already shown like, well, I'm going to do this, but it's not because of love. In this sense, instead here, we're, we're, we're supposed to see that like the fact that you will give and pray and go without is evidence of your humanity. The question is, what will you do these things for? And so we don't ask, do I have to fast? Do I have to sacrifice for something else? Instead, we realize what Jesus has sacrificed on our behalf. We're softened by it. In the end, if if you think you can trust Jesus while still getting everything else you want in the world, you're actually a slave to those passions. You're unable to discern what truly gives you life. Maybe that's one of the most powerful things I can tell you about this for some of you is like, like fasting, do you mean Christians deny themselves? And even that, that might be the most countercultural thing to tell you. Most of us are like, oh yeah, you can be a Christian, you can follow Jesus, and you can have everything else too. Right? You can still, you can still do everything else everyone else in the world does and be a Christian. You can have all the nationalistic, ethnic, racial, cultural loyalties, right? You can have them all and follow Jesus. You can serve as many masters as you want to. But think of it this way. What do you really consume and long for? Maybe ask yourself this. Are you, are you in your current job because of freedom or because of bondage? Are you in the relationships you're in because of freedom or because of bondage? We'll see in the next section here, do you spend money on things because you're free to or because you can't help it and you're in bondage to it? We reverse the powers of the flesh in the kingdom. We confess our sin and frailty and experience satisfying grace. We don't congratulate ourselves. 
Deprivation is when you're starving without it because you need it to live. Deprivation is when you think it's what you need, but you're willing just because you have to, to go without it. Whereas fasting is when you realize that that in and of itself is a form of bondage to that desire. So let me give you some practical tips on fasting. Think of the desires that control you. Think of the things that own you. And be willing to intentionally die them, die to them, to put them to death. Now, here's a practical way of, of simply fasting with, like learning the actual fast we're talking about, okay? Uh, they would have, these, his audience would have known what it means to fast regularly during the feast, especially the Day of Atonement. But here's, here's something to do. Get some friends around you, some Christian friends around you, people in your gospel community, and make a commitment to, is you're going to be blown away how simple this is, skip dinner and say, hey, together, it's best if you do it together, hey, we're going to skip dinner and we're going to read and study and meditate upon the Bible. And then tomorrow, when we eat breakfast, right, when we break the fast together, we're going to talk about what we learned. That's it. What did you learn about not eating and studying the Bible? And I promise you, whatever you, again, whatever you say in that actual breaking of the fast, breakfast, you do it every day, right, in that, in that breaking of it, you will be overwhelmed by what you realize about your flesh and what you realize about God as a father. It's that simple. Again, I'm not passing a law here. By, by God's grace, we will find out what God wants to show us when we stop being slave to our earthly passions and even just kind of stopping eating for a little while. Again, I, I want to I I like in, introduce a caveat here, but it may not be helpful. Like, Don't starve yourself. But on the other hand, again, that's the point. You could starve yourself, and God would still be good, know your need, and deliver you from sin. By God's grace, Christians are gently invited by a loving Savior to be more human and less robotic, to be more in touch with our real desires and real needs, and how we're created to be dependent creatures, not robots or gods. Now, I think you're going to be able to connect many of the dots that I just described in fasting to this next passage about treasure, money, the eye, and masters. So if, if, if what I said was helpful, right, what you, what you consume becomes uh, something that consumes you, then here's a other practical insight from what we think about treasure. You become possessed by what you possess. If he's warning here about fasting, experiencing self-denial so that we will understand the power of the flesh and understand the power of God is that what we consume... It, oftentimes begins to consume us, then so also when he immediately goes into the next topic to kind of summarize in these next two sections what he has covered about uh, living in a way that's not hypocritical, I think you'll see the same thing. You'll be possessed by what you possess. The things you own start owning you. The things you really like start to have power over you. Think of it this way. When he, if, if the first distinction I wanted you to have is the difference between fasting and deprivation, I want you to see here the difference between treasure and wealth. What you treasure isn't the stuff you buy. What you treasure is the reason you buy it. Right? What you treasure isn't necessarily wealth. What you treasure is the reason and motivation you even accumulate it in the first place. That's what he's talking about. He's not just saying like, even though he explicitly talks about money, we'll, say that, we'll address that in just a second, he's not only talking about money. He's talking about what money represents and accomplishes for you. 
So what you treasure isn't just what you consume or buy. What you treasure is the state of your heart that makes it to where you couldn't stop if you wanted to. And one of the most important things you can learn here is the difference between treasure and then money, value, riches, and wealth. You will, whether you like it or not, spend your life storing up something. You will spend your life seeking and building up treasure. The question isn't will you, the question is what will you spend your life building up? Connect the dots. Connect the dots between the experience of self-sacrifice and self-denial and, in this case, the the relinquishing the need to hoard or store up in this world. They're directly connected. They're absolutely connected. Here's the, I think before we go any further, here's my, my contention of how they're connected. We will fill ourselves in fasting what we should be storing up as eternal treasure. The thing that you're most terrified of fasting from is likely the treasure that owns you. And the thing that we're seeking and fasting, namely we're intentionally and willfully experiencing self-sacrifice in a certain area to be filled with eternal treasure, with eternal satisfaction, those are the things we should be storing up. You see why Jesus discussed them back to back? There's likely several dots connected to it. The, like your greatest fear for the things that you're losing are, are the things that you should probably willingly do without and to store up what God offers that no one can steal. So don't, tre- he says, don't lay up, I mean, it's an imperative, this is a command, right? This isn't like, I'm, I'm being nicer, right? I'm, I'm asking it as a question. I'm like, hey, what are the things that you're storing up here on earth? And Jesus is like, don't, right? So I've let him say that. Like, are you, are you saying I can't accumulate wealth in this life? Well, I'm not saying it. I mean, Jesus is saying it here, but I'm but there's something going on here that he takes seriously, imperative. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do you hear the good news in it? The thing he's calling you into is actually the better investment. The, the thing he's asking you, and again, I'm, I'm softening it. The thing he's commanding us to do is actually the safer investment. So connect the dots between the things that you would never want to do without and the things that you ought to be storing up that have eternal value. There's a direct connection. The thing that you aren't willing to do without is probably the thing that you're storing up. And you're hoping that no one steals it or it doesn't wear out. Maybe you don't want to endure pain, so you store up modes of comfort. Maybe you don't want to endure rejection, so you store up modes of protecting yourself from people or impressing them or looking cool or acceptable to them. Maybe you don't want to feel powerless or out of control, so you store up for yourself people and places who do exactly what you say. So money and possessions have power. They will either be a a tool that you will utilize or they will be a master that utilizes you. Now, look at the powerful kind of analogy he gives. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can kind of see, I'm just, that's, I don't even need to explain that. There's like, there's so much going on that we should just like sit and meditate on that, right? There's nothing I could add to that. In many ways, it summarizes all of what he's saying about hypocrisy. Like in the end, the state of your heart 
is what matters. And the place where our heart will be in this case is directly connected to what we treasure in this life. And then he makes this strange turn, doesn't he? He's like, money, 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 I. Did you catch that? The eye is the lamp of the body, right? Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Oh, I'm talking about my heart. And then he immediately switches, switches topics. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's ominous, isn't it? Well, let me see if I can explain it. That word healthy, if your eye is healthy, could also be translated and is elsewhere translated benevolent, or in this case, we would say generous. So that's how it's connected between the treasure there and then the master of money, beginning of verse 24. He's saying now, if, if we know what we treasure really matters and has powerful implications, it, it shows something about us, then we see now that what we focus on, what we gaze upon, will either be something that in this case is healthy or that is benevolent or generous, or it will be greedy. Now, I want you to see kind of what I think is one of the most profound things that Jesus is doing here just as a really brilliant teacher. How money controls us and how it exercises power over us is by blinding us. All these other sins that we could walk through, like sexual sin, right? The sin of, I mean, just think of like sin of violence, you don't wonder about, right? You don't have to like, I don't have to ask like, are you really a murderer? Have you thought about how you might be a murderer? Like most of you are like, that seems pretty clear. I, I haven't, I'm not really blind to that. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty, no, have not killed anyone, right? We don't wonder about it. If I said like, are you an adulterer? Have you, have you committed adultery? You know, like I want, I don't remember, I don't, right? But here's the thing. I bet none of us, have sat around wondering, like, I wonder if I'm greedy. I wonder, if, I wonder if my possessions possess me. And you know why? Because the power of greed is blindness. Now, that's in many ways true of every sin, right? The, the way it robs us of self-awareness. We, we become deceived about what is true, and especially what becomes true about ourselves. But what he's saying evidently here, the powerful analogy he's making is that if you find yourself not being generous and greedy, it's because you're blind to it. And the eye, think of it this way, he's saying like, if you have good eyesight, you could be in a, in a light room and see. You might be able to see in the dark, but if you have bad eyesight, then it doesn't matter if there's light or darkness in the room, you still can't see. And he's saying that if, if, if there's a blindness that is crept in by greed and a lack of generosity, then you will be blind to it in a profound way. In a way that, look at what he says, your whole body will be impacted by that darkness. And I, don't, you, don't you love, like, you always want him to like, say something hopeful, but not this one. He just goes like, and if it's that bad, how awful is that? Right? Like that's, that's, at the end of verse 23, he's like, yeah, and if you're blind to what's good, that's terrible. Because I heard a thing of this. I heard a pastor say it this way: greed or materialism blinds us spiritually. Again, that isn't to say that other sin doesn't do that. It is to say there is some profound power being exercised here, such that we look like a blind person. That even if they're in a bright room, 
Their hands and their feet can do them no good because they can't see. Greed and materialism blinds us, darkens our eye, he says here. And while most sins you're vaguely aware of, greed is much more sinister. The sense of entitlement, it's much more sinister. And Jesus says powerfully, watch out for greed, which is ironic because it's like, watch out for greed, even though this is going to be the thing that probably you're blind to. You're blind to it. I, I, I can give a, a few examples, right? It just creeps in without thinking about it. You don't, you, in, in many ways, you don't even want to think about it. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions that you're not going to like. But, but think of like the analogy of, say, like when, when people come in with greed, like when some, some big corporation or someone with a lot of capital, a lot of power, does like moves in and makes some sort of a move that like uh, takes advantage of the poor, that like takes advantage of people who are defenseless and voiceless, it's rarely, it, again, it's rarely because they're like, we want to hurt these people. They're blind to it. They don't even know. Their greed and entitlement, their need for more, blinds it. They don't even, they don't even realize it. They're shocked. They're like, hey, did you notice how your greed and your need for more like harmed all these people? And they're like, I mean, they're indignant. Like, what are you talking? It's like, yeah, okay. And it's like telling a blind person about something that you're looking at. Greed blinds, entitlement blinds. In, in a society driven by consumerism, this ought to terrify us. Especially when Jesus says, again, like, and isn't that awful? So here's a question that you're going to have to ask someone else into your life to, to question for you. Like, are you spending too much money on certain things? Are you giving generously with your money as you ought to be? Now, again, most of us have never asked that question. Do you know why? Because we're blind. We don't want to know. We don't, even want to, we don't even reflect on that. And one of the most powerful things Jesus says here is to invite someone else into your blindness. And here's what I want to warn you. The first thing you're going to think is that they're wrong. But that's what people think about blind spots. They can't see them. It is an act of grace to realize that there are things that greed and entitlement has blinded us to that God has kindly and mercifully put people around us to lead us and serve us through. Ask those kinds of questions. Could I give more? Could I be more generous? Could I be less greedy? Could I share things more? Many of you have taken jobs or made big decisions based on a, a greed that you've been blind to. And somewhere down the road, you realize how miserable you are, right? You're like, man, this is terrible. I don't actually like this thing. I don't actually, it just, just doesn't. And, and I want you to know, just join the club. This is what Jesus says being sinful is like. We don't see it. And until something on the outside helps reveal it to us, it usually causes misery. We're blind. So think of the question he's leading us through, though. What do you treasure? What is it that fills your soul? What is the thing that if you have it, everything else is worth it? Because everything is worth giving this to. Think of it as what is so precious in your life that, did you hear the language he uses in verse 24? Becomes your master. That is, it makes the decisions for you before you have even time to think them through. 
You're blind to it, and you're a slave to it. I'll give you just a couple of quick examples, even from my own life, that I would like, I would invite you to use as a, a reflection, right? Um, the things I want to consume, the treasure I want to store up, right? I'll give you kind of three things that uh, for me is like books, uh, tools, and hobbies, right? So like if you said, hey, I have $10,000 for you, here's the thing, I already know what of those things I would buy. Like I wouldn't have to go shop for them. I already know it. I, al- I mean, it's already in here. I already know what books I want to buy, right? And I'm just waiting for the means to do it. I, I know what tools I would buy, right? I have I already up here. I already want them. I know what, like, things I would buy for my hobbies. Right? I already know what mountain bike. I know what, like, bat and baseball glove. Like, I, I got, don't make fun of my, my hobbies are not as cool as yours. Okay. But I already know what I would do with these things. If you gave me 10 grand, I already know what they are. But here, just, I want, I want to invite you into what's going on there. Why would I want to stock up on books, right? Why would I want to do that? Because down deep, I want people to think I'm knowledgeable. I really want people to think I know what I'm talking about. Why would I stock up on tools? Because I really want people to think I'm useful. Really want people to think I'm, like, ingenious. And why do I stock up or why do I want to, like, treasure up and store up treasures and, like, hobbies? Because I really like to have a good time. I really don't like being uncomfortable. I like recreative time. So can you see how, in many ways, those point to something deeper that I'm regularly going to be blind to and I'm regularly going to be a slave to unless someone or something comes from the outside and helps me see them? What are yours? What are yours? What are the things you already know you want to invest in? And you have, you're, you're blind to thinking anything, like having a second thought about it. You already know you want to do because it's already decided for you. You're already a slave to it. Now, let's wrap up. What should you do with those things? One option is to deprive yourself, right? One option is to, all right, I'll just do without, right? I just I won't have those things and I'll just live without them. The second option is you die to them. Back to my examples, right? Can you see how those things would make me a harm and danger to other people if I didn't die to them? Right, like books. I mean, I I think I've said this to some of you before. Is like, you know, you have a problem when you like buying books more than you like reading them, right? Like, or like buying tools more than you like using them. You're like, that's when you know I have a problem. I like consuming and collecting and hoarding these things more than actually using them. I actually want them to sit there and look clean. I don't know. I'll get two sets. I'll have the one I actually use and one that just sits there and looks pretty. Right? Can you see how even now, like, a person who wants to be knowledgeable, if I die to that, if I sacrifice that, if I lay that and and trust that God will know what I need before I ask for and trust that God sees and is going to provide for me, that actually might make me helpful for you. That actually makes me helpful when I, when I open this up and, and speak about things that I think I'm knowledgeable, things that I've studied, and you'd benefit from that versus if I just use this as a way to appear a certain way to other people. Right, one of the New Testament jobs that I have, it says that pastors are given to the church for the equipping of the saints. You can see how, like, if I, if I die to that desire of collecting tools and that need to be ingenious and need to be effective, if I die to that, I actually become a fairly effective equipper of saints, become a real tool. 
you have permission to say it. Like, in more ways than one, you're absolutely right. I'll take that. My desire for recreation. You can see how that, if I die to that, if it doesn't control me, I actually become a decent, encouraging person to be around. I can fill in the blank for you. What's the treasure you're storing up? It owns you, it blinds you, and it's your master. And realize that the power that you will exercise over it is by dying to it. You, you sacrifice it. You kill it. In many ways, sometimes you kill it just by saying it. It changes the way we experience generosity. Here's a principle I think that I'll give you just a, a couple of really quickly here. Money is the best way to get a realistic picture of your soul. You can tell me whatever you, th- I mean, you can sit there and tell me, oh, I'm this and I'm this and I'm this and I'm this and I'm this. Somebody looks at your receipts and you can't lie, like down to the penny, right? Let someone look at your bank account and then tell you what they value. Like, oh, no, I really, no, you don't. That, no. And think of that as a grace where God means to enter in. Another way to see this is like we, in generosity, if our eye is generous, this is helpful. The tithe isn't the standard of generosity for the Christian. The cross is. I'm not asking you to sacrifice anything meaninglessly. I'm saying when you die to these things, they're resurrected because we know that's the message. That's the good news. There is nothing that we will lose in this life that that because of Christ we won't have resurrected. So invite others to experience it. Think of this as a gracious community will help you see this will help you in your blindness, help, help you lead you through the dark room, and help you lead you out of bondage. Because you cannot, as he says here, you can't serve God and money. You'll either love, I mean, again, this, you'll either love one or hate the other. You'll despise it, he says. I heard one pastor put it this way. Many of us don't struggle, if we would call ourselves Christians, with the decision between heaven and hell. Many of us struggle with the decision of heaven over earth. Many of you on a day-to-day basis will choose heaven over hell, but many of you on a day-to-day basis will choose earth over heaven. C.S. Lewis says it this way, the human history is this long, terrible story of human beings trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. The Proverbs summarizes it by saying that basically only a fool lives only for the few decades we get in this life. A wise man numbers his days and his possessions rightly. You've heard this in politics, follow the money, right? Follow the money. Follow the money. It will show you where your heart is. The treasure will lead you to your heart. And in that you will experience, I promise you, grace. I promise you. It may seem painful. It may seem stark. But I want you to know, especially if you're in this room and you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're just not sure, maybe you're you're figuring that out, I'm so glad you're here. And I want to encourage you with something. I I want to challenge you with something stark. The thing that you're looking for, you can't find in this world. You can't, and you can try. But we give up the things of this world for eternal things. We fill ourselves in fasting, what we should be is storing up as eternal treasure. We lay it up like Christ did with his own life in order to take it up again. 
And Jesus is our true and better, to his own words in the Gospel of John, bread of life and treasure and riches forever. Let me encourage you in this way, based on what Jesus has said and what Jesus has accomplished for you and for me. You can feast on Jesus. And you can, cheesy as it may be, bank on Jesus. You can put all your chips into you. You could deny yourself every single thing of this world, even food, and die in a month of starvation, and you will still feast in heaven with Jesus. You could could lose every bit of treasure that exists in this world and put all of your chips into into a right, move it to the center of the table for Jesus, and you can bank on him. And this is is a hilarious thing to think about when we're about to walk into a recession. I mean, I'm not an economist. You don't have to quote me on that. I don't know what's about to happen. Some people think they are. I don't know, right? Seems right. Seems like, you know, there's a few things going around in the world that have been a little rough in the last couple of years. Seems like someone would have to pay for that. Could be wrong. But what an appropriate time for Christians to be completely, completely, like like not even worried about that. Man, I put my chips in another basket because I'm banking on Jesus. He's not asking you to deprive yourself of food. He's asking you to feast and be satisfied in him. He's not asking you to deprive yourself of earthly treasure. He's asking you to put all your stock and hope in him. He is the bread of life. He is the treasure. And like a piece of bread, he was broken and distributed for those who needed him. And like a great treasure, he was distributed amongst the poor. Why? Because he saw a possession. This is how you're freed from earthly possessions. 1 Peter 2 says it this way. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Elsewhere, that word is translated something like treasure. You want to know how you're free? You don't know how you're free from the treasure that owns us in this world? You see what Jesus treasured. He looked at you, each and every one of you, and said, that's my treasure. That's what I'll deny myself for. That's what I'll give myself for. And when that gets in you deeply, and when Christ becomes your treasure, then food is just food. When Christ is your treasure, stuff is just stuff. When Christ is your treasure, the things you buy are just the things you buy. And when you treasure him, you're free. You're free from these things. You're free to stop spending on yourself, and you're free to give generously like God has given to us. Jesus looked at you and me and treasured us as his own possession so that we would be freed from being possessed by all the other things that own us. Would you see him? You see how beautiful he is? You see how precious he is? Let's pray together. Let's gaze upon him and thank him for his goodness towards us. Jesus, thank you that you are calling us into sacrifice, but not to deprive us, but instead to fill us. Thank you that you have provided everything that we need, and you have promised to us now every spiritual blessing. God, if there's some in this room, maybe the aches and longings of this world are acute. They're powerful. I can't even possibly know the sorrows and disappointments uh, and laments that people bring into this room. Would you help us to see that you mean to give us satisfaction that we long for? Would you help us to be free from the slavery and blindness that this world offers to us? 
Help us to begin to see the otherworldly kind of generosity you showed to us so that we can begin to live in it, sacrificially, authentically and genuinely, truthfully and joyfully. God, for many in this room, maybe there's, there's something they're called to, to deny themselves for. Would you, would you even now make that clear? And make even more clear that there's nothing that we will give up or sacrifice that will not be renewed and restored rightfully. That's what your kingdom's about. From this room, there's treasure we need to be willing to forego and sacrifice. Would you give them the courage and confidence that there's nothing we'll sacrifice, that Jesus already wasn't willing to sacrifice and wasn't restored, resurrected, and renewed? Jesus, thank you. You're not calling us to give up anything, but instead you're calling us to receive more of what you have for us. Thank you that you know our needs before we ask them. Thank you that you see in secret what we really desire. And thank you that you have offered all that we will ever need in Christ. Help us to see that this morning. Help us to treasure that this morning in a way that transforms our lives and our joy. Thank you for this treasure you've offered to us in the person and work of Jesus. Help us to now receive it and rejoice in it in his name. Amen.